Happy 2022! The Eagle is back! And some of us are having major deja vu. COVID positivity rates in the capital region have skyrocketed. Some school districts have gone remote. Government-run test sites are reopening. It feels eerily like 2020 all over again here. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top stories. The first time in New York's history that a woman has delivered this annual address. It's been a year since major changes to bail laws went into effect in New York. We'll take a look at how that's panned out. Just under 4% of them ended up in people getting rearrested before their case ended, rearrested with a violent felony. And we'll talk to American Idol season five winner, Taylor Hicks. He's coming to town this weekend. This will be my, uh, some of my first public performances in a while, and I'm really excited about it. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Casey, Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler, we're back after about a month of a hiatus, which kind of felt like both the longest and shortest month ever. I'm going to be honest, it feels a little like deja vu, a little like 2020 up in here uh, with this sudden spike that we're seeing in COVID-19 positivity. Um, Paint a picture for us. What's the scene these days? (laughs) Well, I'm back in the attic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> after I was, uh, exp- uh, you know, had an exposure to somebody who subsequently tested positive. So I, w- I was sent home. And so I'm sitting here uh, staring out at a snowy vista about to take my own test, which is kind of emblematic of, I think, what a lot of people are going through right now, where it seems like once again, all of a sudden, many, many people, you know, are testing positive. You know, I think everybody's probably heard stories about folks who gathered with family over the holidays. And even if they were very, very careful, uh, it might have run through your family. And Albany County, like many counties around the state, are experiencing record levels. We cracked 1,000 positive tests one day last week, which absolutely blew out the previous records but I by, I think, threefold uh, or more. And, uh, you know, schools are going remote. Albany County schools will be going remote through the MLK weekend holiday. And the good news, of course, is because of vaccinations and booster shots uh, and the fact that the Omicron variant appears to be less lethal, especially when combined with um, the effects of vaccination, hospitalizations, while they are definitely up, are not through the roof and do not at this point appear to be uh, crippling uh, at least many hospital systems. That is the good news. Um, The other good news is that the state is throwing a lot more efforts into testing, new testing facility uh, opened up uh, out, out at U Albany on that campus, but we're still seeing way too much uh, long lines of people who feel sick 
but are, of course, uh, standing outside pharmacies and other health centers in the, uh, the wintry cold waiting to get tested. We're all feeling it on, on some level. Um, all right, let's talk about the other new big news of the week. Our uh, governor, Kathy Hochul, the first female governor of New York, has given her first state of the state address. She gave it on Wednesday. As I stand before you, I'm well aware of the significance of this moment. She's promised to, quote, build a brighter future and usher in a, quote, whole new era for New York. Can you give us the highlights? In terms of both pandemic uh, impact and uh, just style, it was obviously a marked contrast from former Governor Andrew Cuomo, the top line of which is the fact that it was delivered in the assembly chamber. And it's been a decade since a state of the state has been delivered in that chamber. Cuomo never did it there. He essentially made lawmakers come to him, to the Empire State Plaza Convention Center. There was a great deal more pomp and circumstance and stagecraft. Hochul spoke for about 35 minutes. As one reporter noted, she never used her outside voice. Cuomo tended to build to kind of a peroration where he would shout or bellow. Um, Hochul never did that. Of course, there there were very, very few people in the chamber, which meant that the frequent bursts of applause that Cuomo would get, you know, they were they were somewhat subdued. Yeah, her overall message was uh, the need to help the state rebound and experience a rebirth after the pandemic. There were a lot of proposals. The sport, the speech was short, but the accompanying policy book was quite long, I think 200 pages or, or more. And um, it included uh, recommendations, uh, one of which was very notable, which was uh, her proposal to scrap the state Joint Commission on Public Ethics, the much maligned ethics enforcement body. It's no secret that recent events have called into question the effectiveness of the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, JCOPE. Hochul wants to see the current panel, which is appointed by the governor's office and by legislative leaders, done away with uh, in favor of a panel made up of a rotating group of, uh, I believe it's uh, five or perhaps six, of the deans of state accredited law school. I will introduce legislation to replace that commission with a new ethics enforcement watchdog, one with real teeth, one that answers to New Yorkers and not politicians. Now, of course, this all has to get past the legislature. Uh, and, uh, and also, I think it would be interesting to reach out to some of those law school deans to see if they are in, into this duty. <laughs> but um, definitely a, a sign that Hochul is ready to and wants to turn the page on the kind of ethical morass that the state has seen for, for years and years. We're also going to do something our bars and restaurants have been asking for, to once again allow the sale of to-go drinks, a critical revenue stream during the lean times last year. So cheers, New York. One of the uh, topics that I did see trending on Twitter uh, was also that she's hoping to bring back to-go cocktails. Yes, kind of slightly down on the, the list of things that are important to New Yorkers, but certainly important to those who own bars and restaurants, is making permanent the kind of pandemic prompted uh, allowance for being able to either get your cocktail delivered which uh, my lovely wife and I did uh, one time, or to to pick them up, but it has to be in a in a container that uh, that is uh, sealed until you get home to consume it. 
All right. Well, many things to look out for in the coming legislative session. You can read more about all of that on our Capital Confidential section uh, at timesunion.com. And we will also talk more about some state house news coming up later in the podcast. But right now we're going to turn our attention to the fact that the Albany County District Attorney has passed on prosecuting the potential criminal case uh, for alleged sexual misconduct against the former governor, Andrew Cuomo. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, Monday evening, Brendan Lyons, our Capitol Bureau Chief and uh, Investigative Managing Editor, reported that David Soares, the Albany County District Attorney, was going to move to dismiss the criminal complaint uh, emerging from the allegation made by Brittany Camisso, a current gubernatorial aide, that Andrew Cuomo uh, groped her in an aggressive sexual manner in an encounter at the executive mansion in December of 2020. Cuomo has denied it ever happened. And sure enough, on Tuesday morning, after our story appeared online, Soares did, in fact, uh, an- announce that he was going to move to uh, dismiss it, even though he found Commisso to be credible and that uh, he found her allegations to be disturbing, but he did not believe that his office was going to be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, which raised just a lot of questions for critics of Soares, and there have been many down through the years, And also those who say, hey, look, if you believe your prime witness, in this case being Brittany Camisso, and there is evidence to back up elements of her story, even though what occurred in the governor's office on the second floor of the executive mansion is obviously going to be something of a he said, she said, a lot of the elements surrounding that and the facts surrounding that are not in dispute. There was a a lot of anger uh, especially from many of the, the the other women who have accused Cuomo of, of sexual misconduct and saying that this is the kind of thing you really need to leave up to a jury to decide. And uh, there was definitely the perception that Soares kind of took a whiff on, on this case. And it raised criticisms from past years that Soares, as Chris Churchill noted in his column, tends to step back from taking on powerful adversaries. I was scared. I thought that if I had said something that I was either going to be transferred or fired. Now, we had spoken in an exclusive interview with Brittany Camisso back in August, and that was just before the former governor announced his uh, intent to resign. I didn't think that anyone would believe me. And this week she had said something that was, you know, quite powerful with readers. Uh, Can you tell us what she had said in response to uh, what happened with her case? Yeah. In a a statement she gave to Brendan Lyons, she absolutely roasted Soares. I think that the key line, which was stripped across the front page of, of Wednesday's paper, was to every victim out there silently suffering from sexual harassment at the hands of a powerful government official, wondering what will happen if you tell the truth. Please don't let what has happened to me deter you from speaking up. And she said that uh, Soros' decision was emblematic of the reasons why many women do not come forward to talk about these kinds of cases. Harsh, harsh criticism. 
Indeed. And you can go back to listen to parts of our interview with her. We did a joint interview with CBS News uh, on previous episodes of this podcast. All right. One last thing I want to touch on. And it involves one of our Hudson Valley, or former, I should say, Hudson Valley neighbors. Let's talk about David Bowie. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Yeah, this weekend um, marks the uh, both David Bowie's what would have been uh, his birthday. And uh, coming up next Monday, it's the anniversary of his passing. And our uh, Hudson Valley team really dug deep into kind of his legacy and, and the fact that for the latter decades of his life, for a lot of the time, he was just a guy who lived in the Catskills, you know, <laughs> outside of Woodstock, you know, with his wife and, and his young daughter, um, just a, sort of an average guy. And John Barry, who's a, a freelancer for the, the Hudson Valley team, wrote just a wonderful story that kind of collects the anecdotes of people in and around Woodstock um, about their encounters with Bowie. and. It's just great anecdotes about seeing a guy with a British accent in the store, you know, in the in a children's bookstore, for example. The clerk is sort of struggling with a display and and she says, hey, if you'll help me with this, I'll give you a 10 percent discount. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bowie is is, of course, famous. His persona is that of this shape shifting weirdo. I think it's it's fair to say. <laughs> You know, his career involved so many transformations, and that's what was so great about his artistry. It's just great to know that one of his many personas, and maybe the one that was real, who are we to say, was uh, was just kind of, you know, rural second homeowning dad. This guy named David from the Hudson Valley. Yeah, yeah. it's a very powerful story, and it has definitely uh, enticed me to add some of my favorite songs of his to my <laughs> my Spotify playlist as I work uh, this week. But thank you so much, Casey. Uh, it's great to be back and to, to talk to you again about the news of the week. And uh, we'll touch back with you next week. Jess, good to talk to you. As always, you can read more about all of the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. We're going to stick with statehouse news here for the next segment, and let's wind the clock back too while we're at it. Back to 2019, before the resignation of former Governor Andrew Cuomo, before the investigations into his alleged sexual misconduct, before even the pandemic. Feels like ages ago, doesn't it? Anyway, in April of 2019, the state legislature's vote to overhaul New York's bail law was top news. It was a controversial move driven by progressive Democrats. It had the backing of legislative leadership and then-Governor Andrew Cuomo as well. Notably, the changes limited bail to violent felonies. That meant lower-level offenders could go free until their hearings. It took effect in January of 2020. Four months later, though, lawmakers voted to roll some of it back, bowing to constant pressure from critics that included lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, as well as law enforcement and district attorneys. They argued that letting a greater number of offenders go free without bail was contributing to a rise in crime and rearrests. 
Today, about two years since any bail changes took effect, Times Union Capitol Bureau Managing Editor Brendan Lyons and reporter Joshua Solomon wanted to know, is the new law working to reduce documented racial and economic inequalities in the justice system as proponents had hoped it would? Or is it contributing to a rise in crime as critics warned? I reached out to them to find out more. Let's just start out uh, by laying out a little bit of background on it. What are these bail changes? What's sort of the, the short history behind it before we get into what happens now, which is a year later after these changes have taken effect? Several years ago, lawmakers who were listening to people who were seeking reforms to New York's criminal justice system for the, inequ- the inequities that existed and were documented in the system in terms of people being detained endlessly on pretrial conditions, bail was being set too high for individuals to be released and also to participate in their defense, to take part in preparation for their trials and also their ability to see the evidence. It was more than just changing the bail statutes. It was also making it more fair so that a defendant could make an informed decision about whether or not to plead guilty. So those were the sorts of inequities that people sought to correct. What the Times Union has sought to do, and and Josh has been diving into the data to see what's there, is to determine whether or not the changes in the bail system have in fact caused any increases in crime or endangered the public in any way, as, as many critics of the changes have contended. And that, that includes prosecutors. Now let's dive into that data. What did you find one year later? We looked at uh, the state's data that, that came out kind of quietly uh, around Christmas, and we poured through tens of thousands of cases and saw that when all those changes went into full effect starting in July of 2020, through uh, June of 2021, looking at a 12-month window, that there were nearly 100,000 cases were affected by the changes in bail, where people could be let out or, or not held, whatever it may be. And just under 4% of them ended up in people getting rearrested before their case ended, rearrested with a violent felony. Is that significant? Well, it depends who you ask. It depends. <laughs> so it's it's about 3,500 cases. And obviously, any issue that happens where there's a violent felony allegedly committed uh, is important to the person in the family that that crime was committed against. And, and so obviously, there there is significance there. The big question is, how much does this deviate from the norm? How, how different is the 4%? And that's a question we're currently trying to answer. Some of New York City's data suggests that typically about 4% of uh, people who are rearrested end up getting rearrested with a violent felony from data that they have going back to 2009. But that data is not exactly like symmetrical to our data here. So what we know is that it's about 3,500 instances in that 12-month period. We know that as a percentage, it's a relatively small number. We know that some of the Republicans and judges and prosecutors have said that that shows that there are issues 
that we need to we need to make that number smaller as much as we can. Well, when you're talking about the four percent who were rearrested, what kinds of violent felonies were they rearrested for? Is it is it run the gamut or there's you know specific types? So we don't know that. So the data that the state gave, it tells you was the person rearrested and were they rearrested for a misdemeanor, a nonviolent, a violent felony? In certain cases, was that person rearrested with the firearm, whether that be that they used it to to shoot someone, whether they used that as just having it in possession? I, we don't really know the specifics on it, but we know about little under 1% of the cases of the 100,000 or so cases that we looked at little under 1% were people who are rearrested with a violent felony with a firearm. It's also much more than just the crimes of violence, because when we track cases through the court system, and, and I had looked at dozens of them, there are numerous quality of life crimes that judges have now become less restrictive. And they, according to prosecutors, they think that the judges are misinterpreting the statute changes and are releasing people that should be held in custody. And so what the data may not reflect, for instance, are those individuals who are a revolving door, that they commit low-level crimes like burglary or larceny or misdemeanor crimes, and they continue to get released and then rearrested. And you know, I spoke to a business owner in Saratoga County who said that there is an individual from Albany who comes up the Northway and goes into liquor stores and grabs the most expensive bottles of liquor and walks out the door. And they have had this individual arrested numerous times because he sells the liquor bottles online. And no one, they said there's no recourse. And it's gotten to the point where police said, we we just feel we shouldn't even arrest him anymore because he keeps getting released and nothing's happening. And so another thing that we want to dive into is to find out, are the judges misinterpreting the statutes? If someone is charged with a low-level felony, is released, and then commits another felony, should that person have their bail set at a higher rate, perhaps, or have their released under supervision revoked? So it, it's also an issue of criminals, according to prosecutors, who are thumbing their nose at the system. They know that they're going to be released, so they're, they're just committing repeat crimes again and again and again. What are the lawmakers saying? What are, you know, the the um, the Democrats were kind of essential to pushing this through when it initially passed in 2019. Like, what are they saying now? The Democrats and, and progressive activists, advocates of what they call bail reform, they're celebrating this data. They're saying, look, you have potentially 100,000 people who could have previously been held prior to a conviction that were not being held, that did not have to necessarily post a certain bail. And we have a lot of success stories here. They're, they're looking at it at 99% of the time, there wasn't a violent felony with a firearm committed. There was 97% of the time, there wasn't a violent felony committed. And so they're seeing it as overall successful. The big question is, where does Governor Hochul stand on, on the issue? We'll get it done. We'll work very closely with Eric Adams to to uh, make the changes if necessary and to, and first of all, protect public safety, number one, but ensure that we have a system of true justice for all individuals as well. 
I think what you're likely to see is that if there are some changes, for instance, allowing judges to consider dangerousness, however that may be defined, defense attorneys will assert that, well, you don't define dangerousness, so you can't measure it. So that gives a judge too much discretion. But in the raise the age statute, they said that judges, in order to keep a case in the adults and the youth part on the on the adult court side, it, rather than transferring a 16 or 17 year old's case to family court, that they it, there has to be, quote, extraordinary circumstances, but they never defined it. And so the judges don't know what that means. So the legislature and the governor need to do a better job of not only giving the judges more precise definitions and directions here, but also training so that you don't have so much inconsistency among the judiciary. And we should note that at the moment, primaries are set for June, and that runs in line with the session coming up that's starting, that starts this week. You could see a desire maybe even from some Democrats in in more moderate suburban areas to maybe look at some mild walkbacks. But Democratic leadership in the Senate and Assembly have said that they're firm on this, that, they, that they're proud of their changes and they don't want to walk it back at all. If you want to learn more about our reporting on the effects of bail changes or any other statehouse news, visit the Capital Confidential section of timesunion.com. That'll have the latest in New York state government and politics. After the break, it's Six Strings and Diamond Rings with American Idol winner Taylor Hicks. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. In 2006, a salt-and-pepper-haired crooner from Alabama named Taylor Hicks sang his way to victory on the fifth season of American Idol. Since then, he's become a household name, entertaining fans across the world with his blend of southern soul, country, blues, and rock and roll. He's just released a new single called Six Strings and Diamond Rings, and on Saturday, he'll take the stage at Cahoe's Music Hall. Times Union entertainment reporter Shrishti Matthew was able to catch him on the phone before he left for his new cross-country tour. Here's a bit of their conversation. So how many stops before you make it to Cohoes? Well, you know, I don't know, probably a ton, but looking forward to being there for sure. Have you been to the Capital Region before? You know, I believe that I have. um, I have toured up there. 
but I don't believe that I've been to the Cajones Music Hall. Where were you on tour when you were last up here? Um, you know, I think that I was doing some private gigs up in uh, up there. I don't think I was doing some public gigs. Um, this will be my uh, some of my first public performances in a while, and I'm really excited about it. Mm-hmm. And what a year to start touring, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's you know feast or famine. Um, you know, and and hopefully things can can be on the bright side in 2022 how has it been um touring so far especially with the new variant and everything well you just have to pick and choose your battles you know and that's something that you know we've we've last year it seemed to to let up and we were able to you know tour a little bit more but uh we'll just have to to hope and pray that it gets better in 2022 so you recently um, put out a new single, yes, Six Strings and Diamond Rings. So what's that about? Can you tell me a bit about that? The, the new record will be out this year, and, and one of the songs on the record is Six Strings and Diamond Rings. Mm-hmm. It's a song about uh, the road. It's a song about uh, relationships and uh, my really good friend and, and wonderful Grammy music-winning music musician Robert Randolph is on the track and uh it's an exciting time for me because it's been in a while since i've released a record and i'm excited about the record coming out next year it's been a labor of love especially uh in the last couple of years trying to get in the studio and record it but um all is uh, all is good i'm finishing up the, the 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 touches on the on the record um first of the year and it should be out this year sometime will the capital region get to listen to some of it over in Cohoes? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm going to do um, some Bob Seger music, and then I'm also going to uh, to perform some songs off of my older records and some brand new material off of the new record. And how has this whole experience been for you, just the whole going on tour and trying to juggle a pandemic and bringing out a new album? Like you are doing three things at the same time. How does that work out? I mean, I think that you just have to, um, you know, be smart about the directions that you take. I mean, um, pick and choose, you know, the times that you can go out and tour and obviously the times in the studios and, um, you know, just be as safe and as healthy as you possibly can. One of your, like what you are known best for is winning the fifth season of American Idol. Do you find yourself being defined solely by that? And is there anything you're doing to change that or are you going with it? I wish that I could tell you that I, I won American Idol uh, yesterday, but it's been about 15 years. So fortunately, I uh, was able to, you know, branch out and do a lot of different things. You know, the key is um, is to still try to work as much as you can. And I'm I'm coming up on 15 years in show business. So I'm, you know, I'm really happy that, you know, I still get to perform. I still get to perform uh shows and and um and be in entertainment uh i've always wanted to be uh, i'm just uh really you know excited for um the next chapter and that's doing some music up there in cajones and playing some music and and performing this year fingers so, crossed fingers crossed of course of course so can you tell me a bit about the safety measures that you're looking out for especially with this new variant out well, we all we take all the precautions necessary, you know, and and we hope that uh, the ticket buyer can do that too. 
how would you say show business, like you said, you've been in show business for the past 15 years. How would you say it's, it's changed over the course of your career? I feel like I've just, I've never said no, you know, I've never said, uh, I've always been one to, to, you know, take, uh, as many things and as to work as, as many angles as possible. That's something that's always part of what I've done over the years. And, um, you know, I'm excited about, uh, about many more. I've been in it a long time. So, so I, uh, I'm very glad that I get to stay in it. If there was any advice you could go back and give your younger self, today what would it be i would say you know be a little bit more patient about uh your career and letting things come to you you know obviously when we get uh in some situations we might not be uh, as patient as we would like to be but i would just probably say to be a little bit more patient you play an array of instruments like it's not just the guitar for you you also play the harmonica and the um, church organ i believe i do yes um i'll be definitely be playing guitar and harmonica when i come to Cohoes. Finally, is there any message you have to give to the people of Cohoes before, or the people of the Capital Region, rather, before um, your your concert on the eighth? Stay safe, happy, and healthy, and uh, and I'm really looking forward to coming to the Capital Region. Now you're from Alabama, where it isn't as cold. So, are you prepared for the cold? I don't think I'm prepared. I don't think one can be prepared enough for that cold up there. So we'll see. I'll bundle up. <laughs> All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom, Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Brendan Lyons, Joshua Solomon, and Shrishti Matthew for their contributions to this episode.